her husband comes up to me and says, hey, I have to tell you this. You're going to think I'm crazy, but there was an electrical fire in that room, the original room where she thought the fire was. And I'm only alive because I never bothered moving the bed back that you moved. Mm. And to me, I just was like, I just started racking my brain for an explanation. And I'm sure some people could say it's a coincidence, but that is quite a coincidence. Well, Hadley Vlahos, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much of for course. having me. Of course. I have to say, your your book, The In-Between, is one of the most emotional books I've ever read. It's it's emotional and uplifting at the same time. Like I'm literally reading it outside on my porch, crying in the middle of the day, just at some of these stories and and. We'll get into the the through lines of the book, of course, but like just right off the bat, I just wanted to tell you like how much it affected me emotionally and it made me think about all of the situations that people are going through, especially the people that you've worked with. And it, it focuses for people who haven't read the book, the in-between, it focuses on your relationship with, I believe, is it 12 hospice patients in the book? And mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I caught myself driving the other day just looking at houses and I've never really thought about this before, but I, in, in my head, I was thinking like, how many people am I passing that are in hospice? Like you would never know, like you're driving past a house and there's someone in there who's preparing to die. But like, it's always, it's an afterthought because, you know, I'm 29. Um, you know, I've death is, unless I remind myself to think about it, if I'm reading something about stoicism, I, it never really pops into my head. And while I'm reading your book, I found myself thinking about it more and more in a in a positive way. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for reading. Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course. Um, to, so what was your genesis for wanting to write the book about your experience? Because doing what you do and providing the care that you do is one thing, but going about it and actually putting the words onto paper and translating that is a is a whole different thing. Yeah. So I always wanted to be a writer. And then as you know, from reading life took me on a little bit of a different course. I had my son pretty young and had to go into a career that would support us financially, which is why I chose nursing. And then of course, ended up in hospice nursing, which I feel like is my calling. Um, about three years ago, I was on social media and accidentally went viral. And from there, people just started asking me a bunch of questions about hospice. No one was really talking about it at all on social media. It was such a taboo subject. And I would just start telling stories. I was very surprised how many people really liked hearing them. And I was just like, oh, this is cool. Like, look at all the views. Like, people are interested. And then one day I got a message from a woman who said that her husband was in hospice in the hospital. So a very last minute type situation. And doctors were rushing in and out trying to do everything they could. And she was just there by herself. And she sat there and she said that she watched all of my videos. And she understood what was coming And she felt peace and she felt like she knew how to be with him. And I was like, wow, I didn't really realize the impact that you can have on a stranger because I'm so used to impacting my patients' lives that I actually go into their homes and see them. But I didn't really understand that these stories can change strangers' lives. 
And so I have saved that message and looked at it so many times when I'm doubting myself. And that's who I wrote it for. Anyone who really fears death or is going through a hospice situation, I think it's important to share those stories. Yeah, I... uh... In, in terms of the going viral, I feel like the best way to go viral is accidentally because, it, you know, part of podcasting is I'm trying to figure out ways how to get the message out there. And, and sometimes the reels that you create, you never think it's going to be the one to go viral. It's almost an afterthought. And then two weeks later, you're like, holy shit, it's at, you know, 100,000, a million views. And yeah, I don't know what it is. Like, I, I'm... It, and you've had a ton of videos go viral on TikTok. You, it's Nurse Hadley, right on tic, on TikTok. Yeah, you got yeah. you guys should definitely go check it out. But it's a it's a weird thing what captures people's attention and kind of like what drives you into making more of it. And then you know eventually the book comes out of it. But like virality on its own is a very it's like a very weird thing. You never know what's going to resonate with people. I totally agree. And you know I always try to create content that I think will speak very specifically to some people and then stuff that I know will reach a wide audience because I know the specific will really matter to people. And there are some videos that you're like, wow, I thought that that would resonate with just a few people that just go absolutely wild. And you're like, I had no idea so many people even experienced this. Thing. How long does it take you to make each video? Because you use a lot of outfits, you play multiple characters in the story. And having created reels where I'm just speaking and I'm taking it from a podcast, I know how long that takes. So I'm, I'm just curious, like if you're, you know, you're literally writing it out, you're changing costumes, you're, you're playing different roles. Like how long does it take you to make just like a two minute reel? It's definitely a process. So I almost always write my scripts in the middle of the night when I'm feeding the baby. Yeah. That's just my inspiration. And then I film them usually before work. And then I edit them on my lunch break. So I'd say maybe three hours wow. total. That That is incredible. That's awesome. Yeah. There's a, <laughs> a, a, there's a quote in your book, because I'm curious about the way that you grew up. You, you write, for a lot of people, death can be taboo or a scary topic, but it wasn't in my family. How did, how did you grow up that made death more approachable for you? Yeah. So my grandparents are funeral directors. So my mom grew up actually in a funeral home where they embalm bodies in the home in the basement. So I try to do this with my kids as well. It's just talked about as very normal, just how people talk about people dying or people being born. They would talk about mm. people dying and the different processes around it. Um, my grandparents are very funny. Uh, they used to make me, whenever I was young, go up with them and hand out business cards to people who were smoking saying thank you for your business with their funeral card information really? on it. Where would they find, like, was it just people in public, like at a cafe, they'd be smoking? Yeah, like, yeah, like outside of the wow. <laughs> They'd be like, go give the card to people. That's amazing. <laughs> so it was very normal to me. <laughs> Did you ever see any crazy reactions from smokers? Like, were they like, what the hell what is this or like would, would it ever strike any cool conversations or something like that like I would imagine because it's such an out of a out of the box thing to do usually people got very angry <laughs> yeah that's uh I mean look advertising marketing 101 the the cigarette if you see someone old smoking cigarettes they've probably been doing it for a while so it's literally like a bullseye yes. in their mouth that's like there's a hot, much higher percentage chance that 
I'm going to die from this soon. So, I mean, your, your parents are uh, rewriting the marketing textbooks. So that's uh, it's, it's, it's like very guerrilla, guerrilla funeral director acquisition, <laughs> Cl- client acquisition. Yeah, it just something. happens to be that like their client acquisition is dead bodies. But like you, you need to find a way to, you know, get the clients for any business. So I respect it. Yeah, they're, they're something. <laughs> Were you... Were you seeing a lot of the bodies when you were younger, like when they were actually embalming people who passed away? Would you would they bring you in for that? Or like how, what was your exposure like to death in terms of what was actually going on in the funeral home? So I didn't actually see any of that by the time they had kind of moved outside of that role and into more like a director role of like many states. So I didn't see any of that. But whenever people did die in the family, they never kept me from anything. You know, whenever we would go to viewings of the body, they never tried to shield me Mm. from it, which I think. Yeah, I, I would imagine that would give you a much more wholesome relationship with death like a a much more like you're getting uh it's almost like shock therapy from an early age because the the first time I ever saw a body was my grandpa when I was in eighth grade and it was just so weird to me and so shocking to just see the like I remember the first thing that popped into my head was the color like the color was just off like the grayness and they try to put makeup on you and make it seem like you're still alive which I think makes it worse because you're like I know this person is dead but like they're wearing makeup and their face is all shiny and rubbery and I'm like what is going on and I just remember for days after I would go back to school and be like I've never seen a gray person like you could see it in the hands too and it just it took me a really long time to kind of accept that that's just part of what happens when you die yeah absolutely and I think some of that too where I think a lot of people especially in my job as a hospice nurse I will see people keep kids away from patients whenever they get to that point because of what you describe Um, I never was. They would always take me around people and they never said like, oh, you know, they're going to get better. They're going to be okay. Like they would straight up tell me your your great grandparent is going to die. They just did not ever sugarcoat it. And we don't either with our kids. And I see a lot of that on the other side now as a nurse where people will try to shield kids. And I personally think it can make it worse, not always, but sometimes I think it can make it worse. Yeah, when the, the, the shielding part of it, you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's almost like, uh, I mean, the, the first thing that pops into my head when you're talking about that is the drinking when you try to keep a kid away from alcohol until they're 21 and then all of a sudden they have this license to drink as much as they want and black out whenever. It's like the the abstinence from alcohol makes it so much worse when you finally discover it and I feel like it's a similar thing for death where if you go your entire life without thinking about it or seeing it then when it finally starts to happen to people in your family it's just like it it just rocks your world yeah I totally agree how do you think you do you think you were different in ways as a kid like before you even started to think about becoming a hospice nurse like did you notice that your comfortability with death compared to your peers made you different or or more mature or just like I don't know more comfortable with dark humor or or things like that did you notice a difference between you and your your friends I wouldn't say too much um especially because as you read whenever I was in high school Mm. and we lost our friend 
that's when I really started to have issues. And I would say I was on the same level as my friends. And that's because I'd always been exposed to death at the Mm. end of life. And I really didn't have any concept for understanding why it would happen younger. I understood and was, you know, raised to understand that we live our life, we get old, we die. Um, but being cut short was very difficult for me. And that was really my first experience where I also saw my friends going through something. Yeah, the uh, there's another there's a chapter in your book that hits particularly hard. Um, the woman who's 40, I believe she has brain cancer. Yeah. Um, I, I, I apologize, I'm forgetting her first name. But she just like hearing how young she is and like I'm about to turn 30 and I'm like, that could happen. Like it, it's a small percentage chance, but like that could be an outcome of a life. Like you could do everything reasonably healthy. You could live your life as a good person and you could just die early from brain cancer or die in an accident or, or something like that so um yeah i i don't i don't know what the like what the particular question is with that but it it just when i was reading that it just uh it made me more aware of the way that i live and like you know you should take more advantage of things now and just because you're living healthier just because you're a good person just you know and i i like to think i'm a relatively good person i definitely have my asshole-ish side for sure but like that doesn't guarantee anything Uh, i was reading that i'm like nothing is guaranteed yeah absolutely i totally agree and i always kind of challenge people to rethink about like the healthy living which i am all for healthy living but you know i think it's best to kind of think of it like how it makes me feel so good today like living healthy can make me feel better today but you can't diet your way out of death is what i always say Yeah, like i don't deserve to die a certain way because i'm healthy i guess that would be the way the way for me to put it is like this it doesn't like i don't deserve a good death because i've lived a good way like it doesn't just it doesn't happen like that like a doesn't equal b yeah you can definitely mitigate risk definitely but you just never know you can get hit by a car we just never know do you get people who've read the book reaching out to you to to become a death planner, like almost like, can you help me before they even get into hospice or anything close to that? Because I, as a 29 year old, I, I've even thought about like, maybe I should, you know, down the line, just like make a good death plan. Cause I do want to have a peaceful death. Cause I'm, I'm reading about the way that all these people die. Do you, do you have people that reach out to you and you're like, can you help me just make a plan so I don't have to think about this when it's actually happening? Yeah. And that's such a good point. I really do need to mention that. Um, and everyone should have this. There's actually this document anyone can download. It's a legal document in every state, but I think five. It's called Five Wishes. And it is this little booklet that will take you through your end of life wishes and explain it, the different um, things that you can choose from in a totally like non way to, to sway you either way. Um, but it's called Five Wishes and everyone should have it. I have one. It goes through things like, do you want to be cremated or buried? Who do you want to make your medical decisions if you're in something like a coma? Um, You know, do you want to be on life support? If you do, how long? Like, it's really important decisions to make. And more than anything, what I see is making these decisions can really help your family when you're gone to feel like they did the Mm. right thing. Because you can put a lot of guilt if you feel like, you maybe weren't doing what that person wanted or you don't know and you can second guess yourself, especially when you're making emotional 
decisions. And that is so difficult for families to live with. Yeah. Like if, if you're lying there, you know, you're about to die. You're like taking care of logistical things. I can imagine you're, you're just checked out or you're just like, I don't, I'll do the whatever's quickest, like, or gives me the least responsibility, even if it's not the best decision, because you just don't feel like dealing with anything at that point. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I definitely recommend, recommend that. It's, it's a personal decision. So you don't have to share this if you don't want, but for the five wishes, like the cremating versus buried, the, you mentioned the life support. What are your preferences when it comes to things like that? Yeah. So I want to be buried. Um, but I really, you know, whatever, I would like to be planted into a tree if it was more easily accessible. Mm. Maybe whenever I get to the point, I could be made into a tree. Um, I, do not want to be on life support unless it's temporary and I'm going to be come back. If there's any chance of me being um, brain damaged to where I can't live my life, you know, how I normally do, I would prefer to die, um, which pretty much covers most of, most of the choices. And that was a very hard conversation for my husband and I yeah. have because he's a doctor of physical therapy and he was like, oh, I'll help you get back to walking. I'll help you, you know, do this, do that. And I was like, no. No, I, I, I don't. If I'm if you're having to help me do everything, I uh, just let me go. Yeah, that's I mean, that's it, it's good that you make that decision, because like I'm just thinking about my my girlfriend or my brother, like if they didn't make that decision and it was my choice, it would be extremely hard for me to be, say, pull the plug. I like so the fact that the dying person or the person who's brain dead made that decision before it, like it almost takes the guilt away I would imagine from having to pull the plug on someone that you love yeah absolutely and that's a guilt that people can live with I mean for the rest yeah. of their lives and I mean I don't want to do that. my loved yeah. one so, so how what drew you towards becoming a hospice nurse how did you get into that yeah so I started working in a nursing home just uh, it's hard to get a job as a new nurse there's only a few places that'll take you nursing homes are usually one of them and that's where I met my husband but I also was introduced to hospice for the first time in nursing homes we had a lot of hospice patients in the nursing home and I would see the hospice nurses come in and sit one-on-one -on -one with the patient for 30 minutes to an hour and I am running around like a chicken with my head cut off, taking care of like 40 patients at once, as you do in nursing. And I would be like, what job is this where you can just sit down with a patient for 30 minutes and only focus on what that patient needs? Because um, that's what I want to yeah. be doing. And I, I still love it. I still cannot imagine taking care of that many patients at once again. So you saw the, the solo time that you had with the patients and it was a much calmer atmosphere and that's that's what drew you in towards towards hospice like not having to run around pretty much yeah yeah i think it's how medicine should be in an ideal world i mean it's not possible but i wish every specialty allowed nurses to be one-on-one -on -one with patients yeah yeah i mean nurses and doctors get a lot of shit for being impersonal and almost brash around diagnosing people or disease related information but if you're running around and you're taking care of 40 people it's like you can't really stay with one person and console them for 20 minutes after you give whatever diagnosis you're going to give them so like yeah i i guess there's two sides to everything um when, when you when you think about like how how much ground you're being asked to cover as a healthcare professional in that setting 
Yeah, absolutely. And whenever our, our licenses depend on making sure that everyone is safe and okay. Did you did you jump into hospice nursing full time right away? Like this is what you thought you're going to be doing? Or was it more like, I'll try it out and, and we'll see? It was definitely more of like, try it out and see. I had had a couple of jobs. I worked for a year in the hospital doing a bunch of different jobs. Then I did a little bit of time in immediate care, which is like the ER. Then I was in nursing homes. So I was kind of just like trying to find my place. I didn't expect for me to like find my home, but I'm glad I did. What was the first moment where you were like, this is the real shit as a hospice nurse. Like maybe there wasn't anything traumatic or, or super intense, but like the first moment where you're like, God damn, like this is, you know, what the job is. Like th- this is a big part of the job. Yeah. So if you remember Carl in the book, it's not his real name, yes, but that's yeah, what yeah. I call him. Um, for anyone listening who has not read the book, this is a patient I took care of for many months, became very close to him and his wife. He did not like hospice care at first at all. He just did not like to be bothered. He liked to lay in his bed and watch sports. And we gradually just started talking. I would ask him to explain sports to me. I told him I was a single mom and I didn't have time to watch anything or do news. And he would just start telling me the news. And then he would start writing it down for me each visit to give it to me. And it just kind of became a thing over time. And I really enjoyed my visits with him. And a couple of days before he died, he told me, thank you for giving me something to look forward to instead of death. And I didn't even really realize what I was doing by him writing me these notes and us talking about these things and him having a purpose of keeping a single mom up to date on the news. And for me, that moment, I was like, this is this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is where I'm meant to be. Yeah, he, he was giving you the pretty much like the news updates and sports updates. And, uh, you know, basically like the rundowns on on SportsCenter. That was Carl. Yeah. Yeah. He was all time to do. He would just sit in bed all day and watch TV. So, you know, giving him something to do for writing, writing everything down for me was, was something for him. And I, I really yeah. did read them. No, I, I, I mean, I, I've never, I, obviously, I've never been in that situation where I'm sitting around in hospice, but I would imagine even something small like that and having a purpose. And even if it's even if it's something that's just like following sports and writing out a document and then handing that to someone every day and feeling like you're a part of something that can make the end of your life much more enjoyable, rather than waiting, essentially, for something to happen or just kind of sitting there feeling purposelessness. Yeah, absolutely. What like if you if you have a patient that does not have that like there's just nothing that they're into like it it, it almost seems like and, and assuming that like they're all their faculties are there too like like if they're kind of just sitting around they're not really invested in anything if if they're nothing to look forward to do you try to give them something or is it something that they have to find on their own No, I'll find yeah. something. I will. You know, you're in people's homes, so you get a lot of things you can find to talk to them about lots of pictures lots of this and that but I will always try I always think we can learn from others especially people at the end of their life they've lived entire lives and I am always trying to learn from people I have someone right now who owns grocery stores and I'm having him teach me all about what foods to buy what to avoid you know what to do and 
I also find that people really yeah. enjoy sharing with their experts. Yeah, and that's something that I would have never thought about being a hospice nurse if I hadn't come across your book is the amount of, I get therapizing feels like the wrong word, but just like communication and understanding outside of the medical field and just being able to relate to someone. Because I imagine being a hospice nurse that has to be around someone all day and not having that muscle, like not being able to relate or, or you know, being able to check your ego to in terms of keeping the rapport good and, you know, feeling, being able to navigate the waters of conversations and whether it's comfortable or uncomfortable, I, don't, I would imagine that the job gets very difficult for people who can't do that. And in the book, you have so many examples of where you're doing things like watering plants or you're, you're talking about sports or you're just like keeping the patient engaged and it has nothing to do with their condition. It's, it's more of, yeah, it's, it's, it's like a very cool thing to read about. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people don't even think about that, but building that early on, it might seem so small and so insignificant, but there will come a time where they're making a decision like, I'm about to die. Do I want CPR? Do I want someone to bring me back? Do I want food and fluids anymore? And whenever I'm discussing things with them, the, that baseline of them trusting me and us having this relationship can can be everything mm. in them having a comfortable yeah. day. I, f I forget if this this was from the book or if I'm remembering this from somewhere else, but it's a CPR, like you're technically dead. And I, I didn't know that. I thought it was mm -hmm. like your breathing and heart is slowed down, but you're not technically dead and you're kind of, you know, trying to boost the body. But I, I had no idea that you're you're gone already and CPR is bringing you back. So that, uh, I mean, that that decision, whether or not to have CPR would be very important to to know that. So I'm glad uh, I have that little tidbit now. I've had to explain it to people that way before. And I've had to say, if your body dies naturally, do you want me to try to bring you back from the dead? And they're like, no. And I'm like, that's, that's yeah. what CPR that's is. A, that's a much cooler certification if you word it that way than CPR. If you're like, I've brought 27 people back from the dead. It's like, who are you? The like the fucking Grim Reaper or something like that, rather than having like the CPR certification, it's like you're a, you're a, you're a death stopper or something. Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so, so something else that's a, a through line of the book, you, you speak to multiple patients in hospice who see deceased loved ones before they passed. Um, I believe Miss Sue who's one of the pages in the book saw her husband and spoke about her husband saying he's here to come get me. Uh, there's another woman in the book who I believe saw her daughter or her, her uh, was it her daughter that passed away a while ago? Uh, I think that's the one, the first chapter. Oh, wait, sorry. My, uh, my headphones just disconnected one sec. Yes. Yeah. Sorry Good. about that. Um, so yeah. you, you were talking about, I couldn't hear uh, what you said. Yeah. The end of season, so before we get, so there's the first chapter was her sister. Second, Carl was his daughter. Okay. Third chapter was husband. Fourth was no one. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's um like having, 
having people uh, a dying patient see someone who's deceased there there's a lot of things that pop into my head as I'm I'm reading it and you address you address a lot of them in the book like the the hallucinations um mm-hmm. is it is it a spiritual experience is it a hallucination is it actually happening what what do you believe is going on when somebody sees a person who's already dead that is on the brink of death himself. Yeah, I hear hallucinations all the time, which I get. I get it. Um, this is what I always if you asked a hundred psych nurses to explain what their patients saw today that they did not see, you would get a hundred mm. different answers from spiders to a rainbow to the floor move. Um, if you ask a hundred hospice nurses the same question, they will all say that their patients saw deceased loved ones. So that's a big difference there. And then our patients also have hallucinations. So whenever they are, they are seeing these different things. It's not their loved ones. And they're usually scared whenever it happens. Whereas whenever they're seeing deceased loved ones, it is always right before they die. Even if there aren't other symptoms that they're going to die. Sometimes people will just be like, I'm seeing my deceased loved one. And I'm like, oh, okay. All right. Um, maybe we're closer than I thought. And they're always very calm. It brings them peace. Um, I do think it's their loved ones. That's just how I feel from being in these rooms. But I also feel like if you think it's just the brain doing something else, I think it's nice to know that the brain comforts you at the end. And I think that's helpful for people to know who who fear death. Yeah, yeah. Part of me is like it almost doesn't matter what it is towards the end because if I'm dying and I think my wife or my brother or my parents are there and it's a very peaceful experience, I don't need an explanation of why it's happening. Like it I, it would be cool to know for the scientists that are studying it and putting people in MRIs or uh, just trying to see like what is yeah. actually going on in the brain. Is it a baseline chemical reaction? Is there something else unexplainable? Maybe there's something happening that we can't yet explain yet scientifically that we'll know 50, 100 years from now. But to the person that it's happening to, I could see it almost just not mattering. You're like, this is a very pleasant experience. Yeah. I don't want it to stop if it's coming. And it almost doesn't make a difference like what what the source is to that person. Yeah. And I have patients who believe in nothing that see deceased loved ones and they're still comforted yeah. by it. And they change their ways. You know, a lot of people will be like, oh, do they ask for the chaplain and they're seeking God and they want to, no, they, they still believe that, but they're, yeah. they're happy. It's, it's interesting that the patients are always calm. And, and you talk about that in the book too. Like when they, when they're seeing a deceased loved one, the, the calmness that comes over them and it's like they're talking to someone in the room normally and then you compare that to being on psychedelics if you're on mushrooms or lsd um i i can't speak to having hallucinations sober luckily because that's never happened to me but i I have had some experiences with psychedelics and like i calm is not the word i would use to describe it (laughs) if you're seeing even if it's not a full-on hallucination which I've, i've never had even if if it's more of just like colors changing or fractaling or things like that like it can be calming but I definitely have to get myself in a mindset that I'm not going to overreact to this this is just like this means that whatever I've taken is working like I'm not just automatically calm from it and I don't know what that means from a 
scientific standpoint, but it it's just interesting. It, it stood out to me where I'm like, huh, like that should be taken into account that these aren't wild out of control hallucinations and and behavior it, it's something that is affecting the body in a very peaceful manner yeah it's different and i think people try to use what knowledge we already have and apply it and i'm not saying that they might not come out with new information like you said in 50 or 100 years that explains it which if they do they do i'm open you know to reading about it but as it stands now yeah. we we don't have explanations for these do you ever get scientists running studies on death that reach out to you for anecdotal data or reach out to your colleagues that because you're on the ground like you you have the literal hands-on experience with death that doesn't always translate to a scientific study it's like it's hard to put those things into a graph but like anecdotal data is still very important Do, do you get people that reach out to you from the science world yeah they do and they'll want to talk and actually most research now is done just by talking to hospice nurses and seeing where everything overlaps because they actually have got funding to research these things such as seeing deceased loved ones. And it was turned down by the ethics committee. This just happened because they said it is just not ethical to be doing these type of researches on people when when they're dying. Yeah, that, that's tough. Like if someone's if someone wants a good death, and there's you know, microbe attachments stuck to their head and they're like trying to analyze all this data yeah. and there's, they're basically like in a lab as they're dying. That would defeat the whole purpose yeah. of trying to experience a, a peaceful death. That That's a tough one. I feel like you'd have to have someone that was in hospice that maybe was a scientist or was comfortable in a lab and they're like, yeah, hook me up. Like, I don't give a shit. But yeah, I, I would imagine that that's a tough thing to record data for hands-on to like use the tools and do it that's not feeling invasive. Yeah, exactly. Because sometimes I, they don't even tell me. Sometimes I'll just show up to a visit and these are people that I know and take care of a lot and their caregiver will be like, they're talking to their mom. And I would have gone in and just had a normal visit with the patient. I do ask questions when they tell me that, but I would have had no idea Mm. that they were seeing their mom. Unless the caregiver was like, they mentioned their mom last night. And I go and I'm like, are you seeing your mom? When you see someone who's talking to like the, their mom or, or husband, whoever it is, does it feel like a normal conversation that you just can't hear the other person? Like almost if you see someone talking on the phone, like it or, or is it, it what like what I'm just curious, like what the vibe is? Yeah. And they'll talk to both of us. It's it's like I'm the one mm. who is absolute. It's like, a, <laughs> it's like a, they being a talk, podcast host. Yeah, they'll talk to you and then they'll just turn and talk like I, yeah, like I can't hear something. Yeah, no, that's, it's so interesting. Like I, I, I wish we had more answers or like more tangible ways to kind of like dig into that sort of stuff just to figure out what's going on. But it's also the fact that we don't know exactly what's happening is also beautiful because it allows us to wonder and it'll and it allows you to kind of just explore different possibilities but just like actually being there and hearing someone and like there's there's no reason to believe like that person is believing what they're believing like there's no reason to think that they're lying or like they're not incentivized to just like start making things up or you know start talking to someone out of nowhere when they 
don't have those sort of symptoms in the past so it's, it's very very interesting like it, it's uh yeah i i don't know it's it, it <laughs> I, I i i bet it's like very cool to be there in the room i i yeah it is it's a, it's a different kind of energy too and like i said in the book i used to struggle with very black and white thinking it's either this way or it's mm. that way and there's no in between part of the reason for my title the in between and something very beautiful is that sometimes when you will ask these patients questions like where are you going if they say that they're going on a trip and they're just like they're like um i, I don't know and they're really okay with not having yeah. all the answers sometimes and but but they're happy and they're at peace and they're like i don't i don't need to know everything yeah and it, it's fascinating that it seems to happen right before the passing. Like it, it, you describe it almost like a signal that the person's about to pass over, even if you thought they had more time when they start seeing deceased loved ones. It's almost like they're crossing the gate. Like they have, I think in the book, you say they have one foot in and one foot out. It's like you're you're kind of in two different worlds at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And that's how I see it. And, and we take it seriously, you know, who have, we have this like afternoon meeting every day to talk to the nurse who's going to be on call that night about our patients. And if I say, oh, yeah, Miss Smith is seeing deceased loved ones, on call nurse will be like, all right, well, I might be going to see Miss yeah. Smith tonight. So it's, it's to play to play devil's advocate a little bit, if there was someone who said that seeing deceased loved ones in their final hours is just a pure chemical reaction it's the only thing that's happening is that there's a bunch of reactions happening in their brain and then that's making them see and hear and and feel whatever is going on there what what would be your response to someone who has that point of view and is like absolutely sure about it i would say i totally get it because i used to feel exactly the same way and i think that's totally okay and i think what's important is for me I felt that way and I was also very fearful of death because I was just like, it's just going to be like, I'm here one minute, I want to be here and the next minute it's black, I'm gone, there's nothing. And that's scary. So even for people who think that it's just this chemical reaction in your brain, um, understanding that it's not like that, most people are calm, they're at peace, they feel good with what is happening before they die. I think that can be comforting for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. And even if we were able to explain it 100%, I don't think that takes away any of the magic of it. Because there tends to be this thing in science where if you can explain something, then it's no longer magical. It's There's no longer anything mysterious about it. Like if, if I'm staring at a sunset and I'm just completely in awe and I'm sitting on the beach, I'm in a meditative state, I'm just like not even in my own body, I'm so relaxed. If someone explained to me after that happened, like, you know, sunsets, like this is how they happen. Like technically the lights are refracting and the changes the colors and like this. I'm like, I don't care. Like, it's still amazing. Like just just being there and, and feeling it. Yeah, I totally agree. And I'll never, you know, I have a lot of patients that are scared and they are anxious and I worry about them. And then to see a patient who I have been medically treating with anxiety for months and talking through things for months say, my husband is here. I feel so happy and so calm and so at peace. And I'm so excited to see him. I mean, hmm. how can, how can yeah. you not be amazed at that? Yeah, I, I mentioned 
psychedelics before and and I've come across some studies that show that taking psychedelics near the end of life, especially psilocybin, can help you come to terms with death and feel more at peace. Do you do you see that with any of your patients that either request or maybe they're currently taking psychedelics to help them through? Is that a common request in hospice care or is that um, because because it, it's relatively new? I'm, I'm just curious if that's like a widespread thing in hospice or not. So far, the only thing that I've seen become I've been a hospice nurse for over six years now. Uh, marijuana pretty much had very few, very few patients at the beginning six years ago who took marijuana. Um, now it's yeah. a lot that do, but that's really the only one that I know of where people are using it frequently, especially for pain control. And I've seen wonderful results with yeah, that. Yeah, I've heard a few stories uh, from people close to me who have had parents that are passing away and were never weed smokers, never took mushrooms because it gave them so much anxiety or maybe it just wasn't their preference of drug. And then towards the end of the life, they were having trouble opening up. So the son or daughter suggested like, hey, why don't you try this super soft edible, like low grade, it's not going to mess you up. And then all of a sudden, like the last three months of the parents' life, they're just like popping edibles and sharing stories, opening up to their kids. So, so oh, I feel I like it could that. be. Uh, I mean, it already is, but it's it's crazy that it's, it it can also be a tool to help you connect even at that stage in life, which which makes sense because if you're gonna do a drug and you're like you get into that space of oh my god, like I'm gonna die, like you get that feeling like it's never gonna end, but you're like gonna die anyway, and you you're pretty close to it. I imagine that quells some of the fears of like is this gonna kill me? Because it's like I might be dead in a week anyway, so let's just see what happens. I totally agree. And you know, it's funny. It made me think of it. I actually had a patient a couple months ago that started taking marijuana legally. Like we got yeah. a prescription for him. And it was the first time he's very old and you know how people were raised about marijuana that are older. And he took it for the first time. And then he thought that the cops were coming <laughs> for him. He got paranoid. But he hit it. And so then I show up and we're talking about it. And he's like, I don't know where it is. So I'm trying to like look look for it with him, did not find it. And then I'm like, how do I chart this? Now we got to order him more. I just have to chart that I just spent 30 minutes looking yeah. for this. That, that's just a testament to how strong weed paranoia can be, that it can strike at any any age. Yeah. You could, I don't know how old this guy was, but like you, you, you could be 90 years old in the comfort of your own home. And if you get too high, you'll be like, oh my God, there's an entire squadron about to bust into a a 90 year old man's house to confiscate two edibles <laughs> and like in your in your brain you're exactly. like this is definitely happening this is definitely happening and then you're just like oh i guess i'm good i asked the kids i, I don't know where he put them because i said they still had to start cleaning out the house and i was like let me know if you ever find it i'm curious where he put it but i haven't found it <laughs> so he had it that, well that is hilarious um my parents uh it, it sounds like are 
similar to how that guy grew up because my parents you know they drink a little bit i think my my dad tells the same story about smoking weed once and then begging his friends to take him to the hospital when he was 17 (laughs) which was great to hear as i'm growing up because i'm like oh the, the one story i have associated with weed is my dad going into a demonic panic attack and then begging his uh his teammates to ship him to the emergency room that that that's great dad um but like i'm curious to see what will happen with my parents if they because i've had conversations about them with it where they seem more open to trying things as me and my brothers you know we've we've smoked weed taken mushrooms and they're like oh okay like they're not immediately demonizing it they're like that's that's interesting so i'm I'm curious to see what happens when they get to that stage if if they try to experiment with anything that that would be fun i i, I hope yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah. um what what are the most common life regrets of dying people the the most common things that you see yeah a lot of people talk about how they spent their time feeling like they just were focusing on the wrong things like Working too much, of course, is one. Uh, not spending enough time with their family, not spending enough time with their friends. That's very common. Um, and then a lot of times people will talk about uh, really caring a lot what other people think. Um, and, you know, in the end, it really didn't matter. So like always having to get the new car or the new house. And I remember one patient being like, yeah, I had some car. Like I was one of the first ones to have this car. And I said, okay, you know, like trying to act interested. And they're like, do you have any idea what that is? And I was like, no. And they're like, yeah, I worked overtime for like three months to afford that. And you don't even know what it is. Like it didn't matter at all. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely an, an eye-opening realization to know that you're, you're, you can't take anything with you. I mean, it's so cliche and, um, it's, it's not just one realization. Like I, I struggle with that too. It's something I have to constantly remind myself is that does it real? like I was shopping yesterday in a Nordstrom rack and I was looking for a very specific outfit for a wedding. And then I picked out six pieces of clothing that had nothing to do with what I came in here for. And I'm just like, this is going to add to my closet. Like what's an extra 300 bucks? Like, but then I remember that feeling of buying a t-shirt and then I wear it twice and I'm like, it just becomes another t-shirt. So I just ended up putting it back and spending time getting what I came there to get. But it's like a constant, like I feel like you're constantly tempted with cars and clothes and all this stuff. And I have to remind myself, like, none of this shit really matters. Like, as long as I have my health, as long as I have my body and my 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 family, friends, my mind, I could lose. But like there, there will be a day where I would give anything to at 90 years old, my best day at 90 years old, I would give anything to go back to my worst day at 29. Like I'd literally everything I have. So it's, I I imagine you get a lot of people that feel similarly to that guy with the car that are like, I spend so much time trying to get this shit. And like, no one knows what this is. Like no one gives a shit. It's like, I, I, you kind of build it up in your own mind. Yeah. And I definitely think, and at first when I started working with hospice patients, I was like that. I was like, wow, nothing material matters at all. And then I started to talk to people a little bit more and I've kind of reframed that thinking. And now I'm a little bit more about finding happiness every day, even if that is a material things like even if it's like your Starbucks 
if that brings you some happiness every day and it's not, you know, causing the bank to break, I think that's okay. You can find some happiness every day, but just like make sure it's for the right reason. So like, for example, us, like our home, I love it. It's not the bare bones home. It's not a mansion by any means, but it's also, you know, not just a one bedroom home that I'm sure we could survive in. But I love in our home. And so every single day I get happiness. And I think that it's so important to, you know, really look at what's bringing you happiness on a consistent basis. Yeah. And and I realize I'm, I'm very lucky to have that perspective because I've never been in poverty. Like I was born into a family with parents that started a business and it became successful. So I've, I'm grateful to have that perspective on possessions and there is there is like when you have nothing for people that have absolutely nothing, you do need to get to a certain baseline to start appreciating life and getting out of survival mode. So that's a good point. Like one yeah. like once you get to a certain size house or a certain level car, like how much happiness is adding on another room or another like thirty thousand dollars for the newest model? Like there gets to a point or I feel like it's diminishing returns. You're you're spending more money to like not really get that much return on your your happiness. Yeah, I totally agree. And and like you said, you have to get out of survival mode. And people who say money doesn't buy happiness, it's not really showing the full mm-hmm. picture. Do you get like, like like once someone is in hospice, do you get people that still have bucket lists? Like they're trying to do things even though they're extremely limited. Yeah, we've definitely fulfilled some. Um, we've taken patients to the beach one last time with the help of mm. the fire department. Um, we have we had someone go horse riding one last time. That scares yeah. me. Um, <laughs> it scares me <laughs> at 29 um, years old. I've been on horses like three times. Yeah, and, uh, you can imagine this. They actually had all the equipment for like uh, disabled people and we were able to use it and um it was wonderful they were wonderful um and then we've had people take trips we if we can make it happen we will try our best it's one of my favorite parts of my job i'm curious because you've described so many examples of people finding peaceful deaths in the book what is a non peaceful death look like because sometimes it's easier to think about what i don't want and what I do, it's like process of elimination. What what are some of the examples you've seen where you're like, that is not how I want to die. That that does not seem peaceful at all. Yeah, one of the biggest things is family members fighting. I see that more than I'd like to. Um, and I will see patients really struggle with it um, where they're not able to really just enjoy it because their kids are all arguing over what, what should be done. We should do this. We should do that. And sometimes people will literally while these patients are dying, start arguing over money. Like who's getting what money when, really? when mom dies. Mm-hmm. I don't like ever as that. they're, <laughs> they're dissecting the will as the parent is taking the last <laughs> breath, like hashing out, like you're haggling over a used car <laughs> while their parent is dying. Yeah. That is yes. insane. It is very, very, very insane. And I always think to myself, I want to make sure that that is not, yeah. not me. I, I, I'd imagine that's an uncomfortable situation as a nurse because you obviously see how awkward and painful that can be for the person who's dying. But at the same time, to step in and tell kids like this is not how you behave because they're grown adults at that point I, I imagine it's like a battle of do I say something do I not say something like how can I is there anything I can do 
Yeah, it's a very fine line to walk. Um, sometimes I will say something um, because sometimes they'll have discussions outside of the rooms, but it's still very clear that there's extreme tension in the room. And sometimes if I feel comfortable, I will talk to them and be like, hey, I know that y'all are absolutely trying your best to keep mom out of it. I just let you know from an outsider, I can still feel the tension. So she might be able mm. to. And that's kind of how that's interesting. So they can sense the the tension. They can sense the arguments, even if it's happening in another room or outside the house. Yeah, you Mm. can definitely tell when you're in there and it's like not wanting to talk to each other, look at each other. And, you know, are are there any other examples of non peaceful deaths that are more focused on the patient and less the family? Like anything that patients could do to better prepare or better just like it's something uh maybe a low effort thing that you could do before you start to lose your abilities that can make a huge difference as a patient who's dying yeah just knowing what you want like we talked about earlier can really make all of the difference and just really thinking through those things beforehand um and having those conversations especially things like after you die like do you want to be buried or cremated A lot of people obviously need to know, um, but they are going to not want to bring that up to you if you're the one dying because Mm. that's just super uncomfortable. You need to to let people know that. Let them know that what you want before. What the wishes are. Um, you, You spoke a lot in the book about patients choosing their time of death. How how does that work? How how can someone choose a specific moment to die? I don't know. I I think it's amazing. Um, And I always say like how incredible it is. Like they can choose the second, in my opinion. And um, and actually, I haven't even shared this anywhere yet, but I'll share with you how amazing I think this is. Actually, one week ago, we had one of our best friends die, um, who's 38. And this was after a weekend of celebrating my book altogether. He had a heart infection and he went into the ER and his heart stopped. They put him on, they intubated him and, um, you know, he didn't Mm. end up dying. But one of the most incredible things to me, my husband was able to be there along with his parents and friends and they were having to make decisions about taking him off life support. And of course it's incredibly emotionally charged decisions and incredibly difficult decisions to make for his parents at 38. And um, they decided to take him off life support. They gathered everyone in the room. And as the respiratory therapist was about to do it, his heart stopped on its own, right whenever she was going to do it. And to me, whenever my husband said that, I was like, that that means to me that he, he chose to wait as long as he could and then say, I'm not going to put this on anyone. I'm not going to make anyone feel like they, they killed me. Well, yeah. And that, that to me is like your time of death. Yeah. I, well, I'm so sorry to hear that. Thank you. That's, uh, I mean, it's, it's so tragic, especially being how young 
that person is and having a heart infection. I've I've never heard an infection in that context, like your heart being infected outside of a surgery or something like that. Like if you get opened up. Yeah, it's rare, but it, it yeah. does happen. Yeah. And 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 I would I would be so like th- this goes back to like I, I wish there was more information or just ways to have a deeper dive into what's actually going on. But like the mechanism that would allow someone to choose a time or you know be able to like hold on like like is it more of like they're choosing to hold on and then they kind of like release or is it more like I'm actively yeah, that- trying to pass away like you know like when you're trying to fall asleep too hard and like you can't fall asleep then all of a sudden like you distract yourself and then you fall asleep um obviously there's no way to know but <laughs> And, and I find it, I always say, because some people say, well, why didn't my dad wait for me, for example? And I always say that I think some people will choose to to mm. be alone, that they feel like someone can't handle it. And I think it's important to kind of examine, you know, yourself and why that person may have felt that way or just as yeah. a possibility, you know, anything's yeah, possible. Yeah, I, I remember there was one part of the book where there was a husband that vowed that he was going to be there with his wife and at at, at exactly the moment of death and you know he would be there 24 7 and then he went to the bathroom or something and within that minute she passed away and I mean that sucks that he wasn't there but there's also like a hilarious aspect of it like the wife's like you think you can get me like I'll fucking show you like I'll I'll, the minute like as you're taking a piss I'll just be like peace out and then (laughs) that that's that yeah they were they were hilarious and she actually had told me beforehand she's like I'm not dying in front of him he won't leave me alone and she's like you need to prepare him and I said, okay. So I tried to, and she told me it was like going to the bathroom, like dying is just something you do alone in her opinion. And, um, he was like, no, absolutely not. I'm not leaving her. She wants me to be here. That yeah. she doesn't mean that. It's a- <laughs> Whenever I showed up at visit, he was just, he, I actually didn't get help. Yeah. Him yeah. It's a, it, 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 like, it almost turns into you know, a game at that point where you're like, all right, is he, is he, you know, going to the vending machine? Is he taking a piss? Is he, you know, about to drop a deuce? He'll be away for longer. So that's my way to do it. Like she starts to go and then he comes back. So she's like, oh shit, like I got, I got to, I got to save this, <laughs> got to save this exit for, you know, a, a longer, longer bathroom break. Or like she creates a diversion in the hallway, like collaborates with the nurses and like, can you drop something and scream in the hallway? And then he comes back and you're just like, all right, see ya. <laughs> um, so you've been so vulnerable and and honest about the death process and and there's another thing that you open up in the book about which is suffering from an eating disorder and I I have Mm -hmm. people in my life who have dealt with that and I, I, I wanted to ask you what was what were the things that led up to the eating disorder for people who may not be familiar with how that happens or maybe the signs of it but like what what led up to that like the spark where like you felt yourself going into that and and what was your path to get out yeah so you know interestingly enough it was actually a family member commenting on another person's weight who i felt like weighed the same as me and i go into a little bit more detail in the book but they actually didn't directly say anything to me but I internalized someone else being called fat that looked like me. And 
took it personally. And, you know, then I would just start to notice how people talk about my body and people who were praised or if I was being praised for losing weight or being skinny or being a certain size. And I really started in my mind to understand that being skinny is good and being fat is Mm. bad. And that, that kind of black and white thinking. And so it becomes like something you can control and it becomes a goal. And you're like, okay, if I have good grades and I'm skinny, I'm doing great. That that's how you like set, Mm. set the benchmarks. And I, I didn't really understand how messed up that was. And then I had my patient who I call Elizabeth, who was dying from completely, um, unknown cause lung cancer picture of health and she was 40 and um she just said that she had missed out on a lot of life because of her obsession with her weight she wasn't going to the beach because she didn't like how her stomach looked she wasn't going out to dinner with friends she wasn't eating the cake and eat the cake is what really really stuck with me and from there I started to really examine where I was doing those same things Um, I started having conversations with my husband about it and expressing that I thought love was equal to your weight and he would only love me if I stayed a certain weight. And I had to start unraveling that. Some of it was done in therapy too, which I am a huge advocate Mm -hmm. for. And I think it's so important. And, you know, even, even to this day, I think the best thing that a partner can do who has dealt with a partner who's had an eating disorder is to not comment on your weight mm. at all. And even to this day, I you know I had a baby eight months ago when I told my husband, I was like, I'm finally back to my baseline. I feel a little bit better. And I wasn't even really talking about weight, just saying that I feel better being at where I like to be. And he was like, I didn't notice. And honestly, that's the best thing for me is that even whenever I'm a lower weight for him to never comment on yeah. it. Yeah, I, I, I've never dealt with anything that's been as, you know, nearly as serious as that in terms of eating and, and weight. But like, what you're saying is resonating with me about not having weight be the end all be all, because I I became obsessed with hitting a number when I was a kid, because I was definitely the chubby kid in the group. Like I wasn't morbidly obese, like you wouldn't think I was going to die. But like enough that when I would go to the doctor, he'd be like, this is the line where all the normal kids are. And like this dot up here is like where you are. And we need to get you like back down to to this line. And I was like, okay. So for a long time, I used to just think that when I hit X number, that's the end and I don't have to do anything else. And so I kind of went back and forth for a long time of putting on weight and then dropping weight, putting it on just like get back to a number in my mind that was pretty arbitrary. And and it wasn't a full look at my overall health because because weight is just just one aspect of it. But it's uh, I, I think the it seems like we're coming to a better place where things are much more holistic in terms of health and like being a healthy like you'd be an extremely unhealthy person that is within the range of weight that you would think someone is supposed to be for a certain height and you could also be a pretty healthy person and have some extra pounds and you know i i train with a lot of people who do Muay Thai and martial arts and you might look at them walking down the street and be like, oh, that person's like 
a little overweight they're not super athletic and then they get in the room and they're just like kicking my ass and i'm like well that's my uh like it's kind of ingrained in me from playing college baseball and like growing up through athletics like you need to be you have need of a certain look to be seen as as healthy so i'd imagine for for someone like you who's dealt with an eating disorder and you're binging and purging that making that connection to a more holistic view of health is is even harder when you're dealing with something like that yeah it definitely is but you know i i'm glad like you said that we seem to be moving away from that was there something because uh, because you said that you saw someone when you were younger commenting on someone else's weight and that was a, a driver of you falling into the eating disorder was there a moment like that that kind of got you out of it you meant you mentioned talking with edith uh and that was a big moment was was there anything else where th- that gave you that realization to kind of like climb out of the way you were eating that was really that was really the biggest thing and then that moment with her allowed me to open up the conversation with my husband who's my boyfriend at the time without having to talk about myself and talk about something i was so ashamed of because he had no idea what was going on and I was able to say, this is what happened with my patient today. And she felt this way. And he was like, wow, that's crazy. you know." And I was able to really feel out how he felt about things like that and open up that conversation without having to be like, so, by the way, yeah. <laughs> you know, this is what I do. Embarrassing. And it, that, was, that was important yeah. to me to understand that. Most people do not think like that person did that I grew up with who associated weight and love. Yeah. Yeah. What the So the same day when I was reading the chapter with Edith two or three nights ago, I was debating whether or not to go to a comedy show because one of the things that I told myself at the beginning of this year is that I love stand-up comedy so much, but I need to go to more live shows and experience it in person. And there was a show that night and I kept thinking, if I go to the show, I'm not going to have time to work out. Like I, I probably won't, but I work out, uh, like, like I'm not shredded, but I work out enough. Like I, I, if I have a shirt on, you're like, that guy looks like he's in decent shape. So I'm like, I'm reading this chapter and that really made me think about like, you know, screw it. I'm going to the comedy show. I think I ended up getting in a quick work, getting in a quick workout anyway, but I just like bought the ticket right after I finished reading that chapter during lunch and ended up going into the city for a comedy show. So it's like a direct, I, I don't know if I wouldn't, would have done that if I didn't read it right then and there. Cause I was just like, Oh shit, like, fuck it. Like you're going to remember this comedy show, you know, for a pretty long time. You're not going to remember doing biceps and triceps, uh, you know, you'll probably forget about it the next morning. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, is, is there is, so there's an, something unexplainable that you talk about in the book that happened with Edith. And I, I wanted to, to ask you if you could walk through one of these incidents, because there's an incident where she knew your name as a, like a very late stage Alzheimer's mm-hmm. patient. Like she learned your name where it wouldn't be possible. And there's another incidence where she predicted a, an electrical fire, I believe it was. Could, could, could you mm-hmm. talk about like the, the buildup to the electrical fire incident and, and to you, what made it an unexplainable thing that happened? Yeah. So it's, so I was taking care for anyone who hasn't read it. 
of Edith, she had Alzheimer's dementia at her home with her husband. And it is very common for patients with dementia or Alzheimer's to to be confused. I mean, that's the whole process of it. And she would be confused off often. And couple of nights before this happened, she had actually gotten out of the house and was found in a ditch. She didn't even know where she was. So her being confused because of her disease was nothing new. Um, so I was called out to the house, their house, because she was, she saw that her bed was on fire and was in extreme, extreme, extreme mm. distress. And called our doctor, he said to give her anti-anxiety medications, anti-hallucinogenic medications. And, um, they were just not working at all. I had given her what I felt comfortable with, what yeah. he felt comfortable with. So I called one of our very experienced hospice nurses. And I said, what, what do I do? Like, she's having extreme anxiety. She's freaking out. These medications aren't working. What do I do? And she said, well, well what's going on? What does she think? And I said, she thinks her bed's on fire. And she said, well move her bed away from the fire it sounds so obvious and um and but you know you're thinking rationally and you're like no so I was like no that's not gonna work she's like no I think it will so um move the bed to a room down the hallway um which was not as difficult as I thought it would be and as soon as I put it in the other room she got in the bed and went to sleep and I was like wow okay uh Clearly, I just need to listen to the experienced hospice nurses whenever yeah. they tell me to do something because I wish I had done that before I gave her four medications. Um, but she got in bed and went to sleep and all was good, really. Um, she ended up going into a nursing home and her disease process just got worse and worse. She wasn't able to walk anymore. She wasn't able to smile or hold her head up. And she was finally bed bound and she wasn't able to talk anymore. Um and one of my last visits with her, she said my name, which is, I still to this day can tell you the exact everything on that room because I thought I was going crazy when I heard this. I'm No one else is in this room and I'm just shocked. And I heard her say it and I'm shocked. And then I look at her and I'm like, there's no way this just came mm. from her. There, I met her when she was in severe dementia. She, there's no possible way for her to remember me. And she, she looked at me and she said, happily. And I was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm your nurse. And I just was shocked. And this is not uncommon for dementia patients to have these moments of clarity, which is just crazy. Um, and then she ended up dying pretty soon after that. And months after that, so I'd say at least six months from the fire incident, her, Ashes are being spread at the nursing home. I go to it. Her husband comes up to me and says, hey, I have to tell you this. You're going to think I'm crazy. But there was an electrical fire in that room, the original room where she thought the fire was. And I'm only alive because I never bothered moving the bed back that you moved. Mm. And to me, I just was like, I. I just started racking my brain for an explanation. And I'm sure some people could say it's a coincidence, but that is quite a yeah. coincidence in my opinion. Yeah, for it, to not, for it to not just be a hallucination, but for it to be like if, if it was just a hallucination to be the same exact thing that would happen months later and, and that saved her husband's life. Like, like if. If it was simply uh, like regardless of what you believe, like if it's simply 
hallucination, a chemical reaction. She could have seen a unicorn or something, or like a like I don't know, yeah. uh, painting sunset, like whatever. But she, the fact that it was the fire, and then there's a fire in the same spot, and her husband didn't move the bed back. It's yeah, that's that's wild. It yeah, it is, and I, I still don't know. <laughs> how to explain I just take it for what, what it is what did the husband think like did, did he have any thoughts on it he told me very calmly he was like she knew yeah. Edith knew like she knew it for yeah. him it brought him peace you uh you wrote that your experience with Edith made me think about Alzheimer's patients differently from that point on how, how did Edith change yeah. your perspective about people with Alzheimer's you know I think it's so easy to like look at them and be like okay they don't know they're never gonna know they're never gonna know me um I can say something to them and they're going to forget it in a second. So like, why bother doing anything other than coming in here, doing my job? Like, I don't have those opportunities to create the connections like I do with my other patients, like I was saying with Carl or the sports or the photographs. I can't really do that. And so I think it's so easy for us to just be like, okay, get in, do my tasks, leave. And after that, I was like, I need to stop. And they obviously can perceive more than they can express And I need to treat them just like any other patient. And even if it seems like I'm talking to myself, I think that's way better than the majority of people just being silent Mm. around them. Yeah, like like not assuming that because visually it doesn't look like there's something going on that you can't still communicate to them how you would if they were able to understand. Yeah, because I think there's a possibility that they can understand more than they look like they can. How how do you process so much death, but you remain such a grateful and positive person? Like you, you would think that you'd just be like, fuck this, like I'm out. But you, you seem like such a, a bright, you know, grateful it's sunshine, like cliche as it is, like you, you just strike me as a very bright personality. Thank you. Um, I because of my experiences, I don't see this as the end. Um, so feeling confident that everyone who dies, I will see again. Um, first of all, I still do get sad because especially like with my friend who just died, I'm like, I know I will see him again, but I don't, I don't want to wait 50 years. So I'm sad that I have to wait that long to see him again. Um, but I feel confident that I will. So it doesn't scare me to die. And I feel very confidently that we are all here for a reason. We're all here for a purpose. And I wake up every day excited to try to to reach that purpose and get closer to those goals of really just doing the best I can while I'm here on Earth. Do you believe in an afterlife? Yeah, 100%. What do you imagine whatever comes after to be? Like, what, do you have any sort of visual? Are we energy? Are we people? Like, have you ever imagined that space? You know, I really can't. I try to. But I really, I really just don't know. And I've kind of had to find peace with being like, well, I know there's something and I think it'll be pretty and beautiful based on what my patients experience. And um, I'll just have to find out for myself one day. But yeah, I, look I mean, to it. based on your experiences in the book and, and what other hospice nurses have experienced because I, I actually to to get ready for this I was going through the reddit page for nurses and hospice and I was like what are other people saying and then there's a lot of shared experiences where they see patients being visited by deceased family members or 
things unexplainable like Edith and the fire. And if you had to just like drop your need to explain away logic for a few moments, like you don't have to explain it. And someone asked you, what do you think is happening? It seems like there's some sort of transference between two places, like the place that we're in and whatever place this energy is coming from and you don't like I don't know what that place would look like or feel like but it does like you could almost see the uh like it's almost like if you could see the sunshine coming through the window from outside but like you don't know what's outside you just see like the rays of light kind of like peeking through the blinds that's what I was thinking about while I was reading it yeah absolutely and I think that there's definitely a process people go through for a couple of days where they are in between worlds and they are having people that are deceased come and visit them and prepare them for going to the next world because they will talk about going on a journey, going on a trip. And they're, in my opinion, they're just using words that they know and they know I would understand, even though they might not necessarily accurately describe what's even going to happen. But I think that we only have limited, you know, knowledge of an understanding of what comes next. And I really, I really do believe that people's deceased loved ones come to get them. And something interesting also that I notice is that you can kind of tell when someone's energy is gone. Um, and something that I'll tell people is that I notice that people will normally know exactly when someone dies, even though at the end of life, you you can take like up to a minute between breaths. So if we're only talking logic, that would mean that we actually never know someone's dead until one minute after they're Mm. dead because the next breath never comes. But everyone I've ever talked to knows when someone dies. The exact second that they take their last breath, people know it's their Mm. last. And that has to be from some sort of energy that you're feeling, whether you can acknowledge it or make sense of it or not is there any way to describe that energy that you feel when you know that someone's passed away even before you medically record it like is is there does the temperature of the room change is there like it just seems dimmer colors like anything that you could say that would describe that energy feeling so it's just like the feeling of a presence so if you can imagine a friend sitting sitting next to you on the couch and you can feel their presence even if you like you can feel that they're there even if you're not looking at them or thinking about them you can feel someone next to you um even though their body is still there you don't feel Mm. their presence anymore almost like an emptiness yeah this is a more creepy example but like when someone's staring at you that's behind you and you get a feeling and you like turn around (laughs) and someone was staring at you you're like holy shit like how did I know that or like you're sitting on the subway and like you're like someone's definitely staring at me right now and you look up and there's like a group of people that are just like looking right at you it's I I don't know (laughs) there has to be like something some sort of signal or I don't know, like some sort of radio. We ha- we have an antenna for energy, even if it's not yet concrete yet. We we can't explain it. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's kind of like 
the elephant in the room. We've all felt like an elephant in the room, even though there's really not like, yeah. a, a feeling. I definitely <laughs> wouldn't need an antenna for an elephant being in the room. I would definitely be like my house is destroyed, but I get I get the uh, the concept for sure. Um, yeah, th- there's a there's an article I came across when I was surfing through the Reddit page for for hospice and for death experiences, and I and I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Th- this is from Insider.com, and the title of the article is "Researchers." study near-death experiences and then believe in an afterlife. And there's an excerpt from the article that says, many people with near-death experiences also report having the same visions as one another. Often when somebody has a heart attack or something that briefly causes their brain to shut down, many of them will describe floating above their bodies. From there, people with near-death experiences describe traveling through a dark passage. Some report seeing their deceased loved ones and encountering a beam of light. Many say they were Uh, either given a choice to return to their physical body or were even instructed to do so. Critics often argue that dying people's brains play tricks on them, creating fantasies or hallucinations. But a near-death event compromises a person's brain function, whereas hallucinations are usually the result of an overactive sensory cortex that would make it hard for a dying person to hallucinate because that part of the brain receives and interprets sensory information. So I I wanted to ask you if do you think people who have near death experiences could be encountering the same world or version of the same world that dying patients seem to be visiting? Yeah, I think that if you die very suddenly, you're going to go there immediately. And I think if you go through like the process of dying, then what I see like the in between is just preparing you for that but i think it's possible to to not be prepared and just you know go into it but i do think that your loved ones come and prepare you for it but i think it's the same world yeah it's i I feel like it's also uh good to pay attention to when you have a group of people like scientists who are they, they may be staunchly against an afterlife or anything that's not explainable by the current science. But then you have a group of people. I, I forget where the people in this article are from, but it was like a Harvard or Stanford, like the, like very dedicated to studying near-death experiences. And a lot of people in this field then go on to believe in an afterlife or or become more spiritual. It's and it, like scientists that study something they're staunchly against it and then all of a sudden like it changes their view i just feel like it's it's good to pay attention to those things yeah i do too and you know as you know i i stopped believing in anything at all and so everything that i experienced i questioned and i was like there surely has got to be an answer for this that will explain this away And at some point it stopped what I was trying to explain away made less sense than there, there being an afterlife. Do you ever have patients who have had crazy last words? Like they've said something and then they die and you're like, holy shit, that was nuts. No, I think that's such a common (laughs) misconception though. I I never have, maybe other hospice nurses have, but no, I really have. Yeah. I, I I feel like if I were to try to do that, it would almost be more awkward to say the thing like but then not die right away you're just like shit i miss time like if if someone's in the room that you don't like and you're just like go fuck and you're like you flip them off but then like you're still alive for another day you're like shit i really i I missed time that one guys sorry (laughs) 
Yeah. And most people will kind of be talking to us and they just gradually start sleeping more. They're in a coma and then they die. So it's like a very gradual process. But I will say, I did have one coworker, I just thought of this, who had a patient in a coma like that for a little bit. He died. She pronounced him. And then a minute later, he woke up and asked everyone why they were crying and then died again. And she is not one to sensationalize at all. Um, that, that is always stuck with Yeah. <laughs> Damn. So his last words were, yeah. why is everyone crying? Yeah, like, almost like you just walk into a room and you have no idea what happened. And you're just like, why Why is everyone so emotional? And then you just go back. That's that's pretty funny. Yeah. Um, I, I'm actually, I'm going to take another quick trip to the bathroom and then I'll be right back and, and we'll wrap up. So I, I have to to ask you this because you are the expert. We we talked about the, the five wishes for the different preferences for the... Yeah um like the the preparation before the death process but like how do you actually want to die with like location or music people like what to you makes the good death in the moment like actually in the room that it happens so i actually i'm currently working on this i just got approval from the government um, to open a nonprofit hospice house. That's my next goal in life. Um, and I really want to do it differently from anything that is out there and really change how things are done uh, with dying in the United States. So my vision is this hospice house. It's like a home, like any other home uh, that has like four to five bedrooms and your caregiver is invited with you so like your spouse or your child or whoever's with you most of the time and you come in and we help you with writing letters to loved ones or leaving video messages or fulfilling a bucket mm. list item and you get one night to do a living funeral dinner and invite all of your family and friends and have toasts to your life like people would give eulogies and share happy memories. And we're also there as nursing support and all of that other good stuff. And it's calm, and it's peaceful, and you felt like you got to be a part of something. And that that's not only how I want to die, but that's what I want for a lot of other people. Yeah, that, that's amazing. So uh, like a, a living party, essentially, like you get to throw it how you want it. I yeah. feel like that's the way to go. I know I know other cultures do things that fall more in line with having a celebration while someone's in the passing away process, but like it's not the after death typical funeral that you imagine in the western world. And and I I feel like the the former is just better all around because like selfishly I want to hear what people have to say about me, good or bad before I die. Like I just want to hear like okay, Talk, like tell me what your favorite times are talk shit about me i want to make a speech so that it's fair to like address people in the room but there's it seems like there's such a comfort of and, and such a, a liveliness of, of take something like a wedding where people are making speeches and they're celebrating and, and like it, it's almost like if you were to have a wedding celebration like, like funerals nowadays like the classic funeral it's like celebrating a wedding without the bride and groom actually there, which makes zero sense. So like yeah, I, that's exactly how I see yeah. it too. I totally and I also think in our like um corporate world, um, having a place where it's a date and an event, like a wedding, it you know, I think a lot of people when they have a loved one on hospice, they're like, 
I need to make time to go. I need to tell them how much they mean to me. But it can be difficult to even get off work until there's a funeral. And you're like, okay, now I have like a reason, like an excuse to go. Um, When I, whereas sometimes just like, yeah, my grandmother's sick isn't. But if you say, I have to attend a living funeral on this date, it, it gives more of a a reason like a wedding, like you said. Yeah. Like you, you can even send out invitations. Like I'll, I'll, make a card that says i'm dying bitch and then like send it out to all my friends who are still alive at that point um but yeah to like actually make it feel like an in the moment celebration rather than just like a purely sad grieving event where you know depending on what you believe or don't believe a dying person is not even gonna see or here. So I, I love that idea for your for your nonprofit. That sounds amazing. Thank you. How far along are you in the process of, of setting it up and like picking locations and stuff like that? So I know I want to do the first one near me, which is near New Orleans, just because I know the community and I know the need. Um, but for the process, I already had a law firm get all the paperwork together and I just got approval from the IRS to be tax exempt, which is like the really big thing to start raising money. Um, so I'm an official nonprofit uh, by the IRS. So whenever I'm not doing podcasts and talking about the book, I'm starting to organize committees, um, start maybe organizing an event to fundraise. And I just want to get all my ducks in a row because of my social media following. I have a feeling it will take off. And I just want to make sure that I have everything lined up. To oh, take yeah, advantage for of sure. It. And to go back to the social media, I, again, Definitely check out Hadley on TikTok. I think it's 1.2 million. Like it's it, crazy following. She puts so much effort into the videos. So you guys definitely got to go check it out. And then having that following is 100% going to spark the the growth of the nonprofit for sure. Have yeah, you thought of a so name excited. for it yet? Yes, I like Hadley that. House. Hadley House. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so, so something that was also on my mind while I was reading the book is like, in the West, especially in America, the mentality around death is to avoid thinking about it at all costs, like extend your lifespan beyond the point where living is fulfilling. You're, and deciding that you're ready to die can be seen as weak or giving up. Like it's death is always framed as a battle. Like you have to battle cancer or battle whatever disease that is. And if you give in and you give up treatment, that's seen as you're losing the battle to the disease. And then that paired with our healthcare system, there's a lot of incentivizations for doctors to keep patients alive as long as possible, even past the point where it's actually giving them a fulfilling life. Like you're, you're basically just giving a body alive. Like how can, how can someone reconcile with the, the inevitability of death? Like a, a person who, uh, let's say our generation, I think you're 29, 30 or 28. Okay, perfect. So pretty much we're the same age, like for someone in our generation who hopefully has a long time to prepare, prepare for death. Do you, do you think things will 
change in terms of it being more mainstream to care about the peacefulness and the fulfillment of death just like life instead of like trying to hang on as long as possible or do you think as long as we have these systems in place that it's really going to be you know fighting an upstream battle to get people to accept these things more yeah i already see a ton of changes especially on social media even just from three years ago to today um, so much more positive around discussing death. And people are so much more open to talking about it, talking about hospice, which was more about quality of life. I think there's going to be a lot of change. And I think that a lot of people are going to care more about quality of life. And I mean, I think that's so wonderful. And I always say, you know, I, I did a skit with a doctor who's also on TikTok not too long ago where he was role playing a doctor saying, I'm really nervous to talk to my patient and suggest hospice because I don't want him to think that we're giving up on yeah. him. Um, Because there's more things I can still do, but he could also go into hospice. And in the skit, I was saying, you know, but you're, you're giving a person a choice. And that's one of the nicest things that you can do for someone is to let someone choose how mm. they die. Yeah, let, let them choose how they die. They have more autonomy over that process. Yeah, especially in such an out of control situation, which is which is dying that can feel yeah. extremely out of control. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to go back to the to the wealth question for a second, because it's such a it's such a big stressor to build up just like a, 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 an, a uh, I, I guess an amassment or a mass of wealth to have to ensure that you can die peacefully or die, spend the, the end of your life the way that you want without working. Do you notice a big difference between the people in hospice who like they're not in survival mode? So they have they have enough money to be comfortable. Do you notice a difference between that level of wealth and then people who are just like shitting money you walk into their mansion and you know it's crazy the the cars the pools everything is there a level of peace that's noticeable between those groups or does wealth once you get past a certain point not really affect the actual dying process yeah like you said it's definitely a certain point so the baseline for where it's a more peaceful experience is whenever you can afford paid caregivers because of course, as you know, hospice nurses come in, can come up to like an hour a day and be on call, but we're not there all the time. And your caregiver is the person responsible. And that mm -hmm. can be exhausting, absolutely exhausting. I mean, if you can imagine giving medications every hour, like when are you supposed to sleep? Um, so whenever you can afford paid caregivers, which is currently about 25 to $30 an hour, yeah. very expensive. Whenever we're talking eight hours a day, um, minimum because they have minimums uh whenever people can afford that so that if they feel like they need a break almost like if you're a parent and you can afford yeah. date nights it can make your marriage so much better that is what i see as the yeah. line so if you if you have enough to afford someone being able to be there on a, a more 24 7 basis those are the situations where you see a more peaceful more fulfilling death process okay yeah good to know um to end off, do you, do you have any advice for, and, and this applies to me as well, like, do you have any advice for people uh, who want to see their parents pass away as peacefully as possible? Like, especially like 30s, 40s, 50s, when your parents start to get up there, is there advice for things that you can do 
during the dying process that just makes things better for your parents? Yeah. One of the best things you can do is hospice as early as possible. That's going to be so individual for every person because, of course, you can't do hospice if you weren't doing like cancer treatments or surgeries. And everyone's going to have a different opinion on when they should stop that. Um, But, you know, really looking at a situation and saying, is this really going to cure me? Or is this just extending my life by a month? And it's not really even a quality of life type of thing. So like really assessing and helping your parents assess each time that you start like a new round of chemo, or you're thinking about a new surgery, that Mm. can really help. Um, But getting into hospice early can be one of the best things you can do, even if we're not even doing anything at the beginning, we're we're learning about you and we're learning about your parents and what their preferences are so that whenever push does come to shove, we already know you and we're not meeting you. And, you know, that, that is super important, but just, just having the conversations with them. Most people are totally open to having these conversations. Just no one wants to bring it up. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, dark to like I, I feel like the expectation of the conversation around death is much more scary than when you actually start to talk about it or you're, you're reading about it um so that that is another thing that reading the book has given me is that i definitely uh my parents are doing very well uh knock on wood so i don't have to have this conversation it's not an immediate thing But it's definitely now on my list of things just running in the back of my mind. Like, I should be more open about this. I should discuss this. This isn't something that we should be starting once things start to fall off a cliff. This this should be something I talk about with my brothers earlier on. Like, the earlier, the better. Yeah. So uh, where can people, where's the best place for people to follow you to pick up? the book, the in-between, keep in touch with what's going on with the nonprofit? Yeah, so Nurse Hadley is my social media handle across all platforms. Uh, my book's called The In-Between. Uh, the subtitle's Unforgettable Encounters During Life's Final Moments. And I'm Hadley Vlahos. Um, it's a blue circle and a yellow circle. There's a couple in-betweens and, uh, on the cover. And I'll for the nonprofit, I'll be posting about it on social Amazing. media. Amazing. Th- thank you so much, Hadley, for your time. This. This has truly been an awesome conversation. So thank you so much. 